If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 17. That's where we left off last week. And so we'll look at that in just a bit. But we are in a series, today being the third session, called Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. Why are we in that series? Because God has given us a mission to carry out in the world. But he also tells us in Scripture that there's something wrong with the world. So this creates a real tension and a real difficulty for those of us who are followers of Jesus to, on the one hand, carry out his mission in the world, all the while there's something tragically wrong with with the world that we, that we live in. And so we, as we carry out the mission, have to determine how we are going to relate to the world. And that has historically been a great problem for Christians, knowing how to relate as a Christian in a fallen, sinful world, how to, how to relate to, to it. And Jesus gave us the way to relate to it. In John 17, he said, you're to be in it, but not of it. So you are in it physically. This is the, the arena of your mission. This is where I have placed you to carry out the work I've called you to. You're in the world. But then he said, you are not to be of the world. So you are in it. It's the sphere, the arena of your activity, but you're not to be of it. That is the source. That's what not being of the world means. The source of your priorities and your values, and your desires, and your loves, and your affections are not to derive from the world. So that suggests that the world is something more than just a a physical location. And indeed, the way the word world is used in the New Testament, uh, you could define worldliness this way. Here's a working definition of worldliness that I gave you a couple weeks ago. It is fallen values expressed in culture. So at any given time and at any any given place in the world, you're part of a, a culture, and that culture in different ways, and in different ways at different times, expresses fallen values in its priorities, in its values, in its desires. These are expressed in all the outlets for culture, the media and the arts and politics and Make a whole list. Fallen values expressed in culture. That's worldliness. And the Bible warns us about being worldly. Not being contaminated by the value system of the world. And so we are warned in Romans chapter 12 to not be conformed to this world. And we're told in uh, James chapter 1 in verse 27 to that pure religion that God our Father accepts is this. To, to help widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. James 4.4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world comes not from the Father, uh, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but he who does the will of the Lord will live forever. So there's something wrong with the world, and yet, here I am. I'm supposed to carry out this mission in the world, but not of the world. That's why we're doing a series called Living Right in a World That Has Gone, gone Wrong. And the truth is, everybody agrees that it's gone wrong. Believers and non-believers alike know that, that it's gone wrong, that there is a, a ton of wrong that needs to be righted. 
And I've tried to make the case in the last few weeks that even though we agree, believers and non-believers agree, that there is much that is wrong that needs to be corrected, the non-believer has no basis for saying it's wrong. He knows it is, but he doesn't have any basis for saying so. On what basis does he say it should be or it ought to be different? When you use the word ought, you've immediately introduced a standard, haven't you? It ought to be like this. Like what? Who says so, unbeliever? Who told you it should be like that? And on what basis are you now going to impose the way you think it ought to be on other people? So the minute you say it should be or it ought to be, you've implied that there is a standard. But of course, your non-believing friend, how does he have a standard? That's why he can accuse you and Christians, as Christopher Hitchens took great delight in doing. Christians are hypocrites. So yeah, you know, we've got a public standard that we're compared to. What about you? You make it up on the fly. See, it's easy for you not to be a hypocrite because you're your own standard. You ever thought about that? If you're your own standard, you'll never be a hypocrite. If you are your own standard, you'll always meet it. You can slide the scale any way you feel like. And we can't. Because we have a published standard, a lofty standard, a perfect standard against which we are, we are judged. So we all agree there's something wrong, but the unbeliever doesn't have any basis for saying what it is. And so I've said in the last couple of weeks, the unbeliever has no basis for wrong. He also, secondly, has no categories to differentiate between sin and suffering. So there's, there's bad stuff. But of that bad stuff, how much of it is personal sin how much of it is, is just bad things happen, stuff happens, suffering. And the unbeliever, how's he going to do it? Sin is not sin. There is no such thing as sin unless it's in reference to God. And so once you, once you have that, now who am I responsible to? If you remove that, how do I differentiate between things are just bad, but you're responsible for those things that are bad? And you see the confusion, as I said last week, in the way we use terms, terms like the word sick. You know, we, we now use sick to refer to personal behavior. When we used to use sick to refer to physical suffering. And, and you even hear it in people's voices, as I said last week. We'll say with disdain, you know. Somebody's got this behavioral problem. So you're finally fed up with it, and so you're sick. You need help, you know. So we've mixed the categories. Well, we've mixed it because they don't have any basis for differentiating. And then thirdly, there's no clarity for the unbeliever in ethics. You know, why should a human being be treated better than a horse? Why should he? Should he? I'm going to say, yeah. I've got a basis. How about you? And the truth is, this is why you see now people who are just gone wacky in terms of their zeal to protect, frankly, lesser forms of life. <laughs> and, and what's a lesser form of life? 
Anything under humanity, according to the Bible, is a lesser form of life. It's only, only humanity is made in the image of God. Now, I appreciate the beauty and the design and the wonder of everything else God has created. But ain't nothing else created in His image. And so I know, I know, you know, last week I scared a bunch of people. And I said, you know, if one of the horses in the Kentucky Derby, you know, if something happens, I mean, I don't want that to happen, but, but I really care if something happens to jockey. And some people came and said, you don't have a pet, do you? <laughs> Tell me you don't have a pet. <laughs> and, and I don't have a pet. I used to, no. <laughs> Buried down the back 40. <laughs> there's no clarity in ethics then because there's no basis and no categories. So we began to look at Acts 17, because this is not new. This has always been the deal between the biblical worldview and the worldview of unbelievers. And Paul confronted it in Acts chapter 17 at a place called Mars Hill in a city called Athens, uh, Athens Greece, philosophical capital of the ancient world. And we saw that Paul, beginning in verse 16, Paul is waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy, his associates, to join him. While he's waiting for them, verse 16 says that he was greatly distressed. And that is a term of great intense pain, internal pain, as Paul looks at the city full of idols. It's, it's a word, the Greek word translated greatly distressed, we get convulsion from it. So he had a... He had a, a a physical reaction, a visceral reaction to what he saw in the idolatry of that city. And he took action. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned. And then it tells us that he would reason in the synagogue and also in the, in the marketplace. And he was proclaiming Jesus. And the Athenian philosophers were so confused and only had a, only had a perspective that allowed for a pantheon of God and goddesses. So when Jesus preaches to them, Jesus and the resurrection, from their perspective, they're saying he must be introducing two new gods, a male god and a female god, I told you last week. And so they say, you seem to, they heard him preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and they thought he's introducing foreign gods. And Luke parenthetically says in verse 21 that you know the Athenians sat around doing nothing else but talking and looking to hear some new thing. And they seized him, the Bible says, and took him to a meeting of the Areopagus, the city fathers. They seized him, they arrested him, and they said, you can't go around doing this without permission. And the Bible tells us that Paul stood up in the meeting in verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way... You are very religious, superstitious. For as I walked around, looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And now he begins to proclaim in verse 24. Now, get this. As we live right in a world gone wrong, here's one of the things that we have to have cemented in our minds that these people with whom we live that are outside of Jesus and therefore have a different set of lenses through which they see the world, radically different set of lenses, that the Bible tells us something about them that we know 
before we ever engage them, before we ever talk to the unbeliever, we already know a good bit of stuff about him or her. And here's one of the things we know. They were made in the image of God. And they were made by that God to know him. Before you ever talk to an unbeliever, you know that he or she was made by God to know God. Further, they still, as we're going to see in a bit from Romans 1, they still know God. Even though they deny him, they still know him. They know of him. They know about him. This is why when Paul stands up and he begins to speak in verse 24 of Acts 17, he does not seek to prove God. Do you notice that? He does not seek to say, here are the four philosophical proofs for the existence of God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Why? Because he already knows they know God. They know about this God. They were made in the image of this God. And so he proclaims the God, the creator, who made the world, including you. Isn't that how the Bible starts, friends? Have you ever noticed? The Bible just goes God. In the beginning, God. Now, <laughs> you know, if you write a novel, you develop your characters. So that people will get to know what's going on with, right? Not, not so with God. No development going on there. In the beginning, God. And the expectation is, you all know who we're talking about. The one who made you and the one to whom you are responsible. That's the way the Bible starts. And it's the assumption, the presupposition upon which Paul proceeds. The God who made the world and everything in it is not served by temples that are made with human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's what he says. He says in verse 26, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Well, let me stop. From one man he made every nation of men. He, so he made you, Athenian philosopher, right? You're included in that. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So you are hanging out on Mars Hill, not by accident. You were born in the vicinity of Athens, Greece, not by accident. This encounter that we are having right now, where I'm proclaiming the true and living God to you, is not by accident. He has determined everything. He made you and you're responsible to him. But he goes on. He did this, verse 27, that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, and some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now here's why he does that. He quotes their own clueless poets. Because you know this God. Your own poets have acknowledged that we are his offspring. We're his offspring and yet you make him a statue. 
and something or someone that you can control. We're his offspring. How crazy is that? But that's what you guys are doing. So when he says this, I mean, he is, yes, on the one hand, trying to keep himself from getting killed. So he chooses his words carefully. On the other hand, he is, make no mistake, letting them know, you know this God, you were made by this God, you are controlled by this God, and you're responsible to him, and you know him. Therefore, verse 29, since we are God's offspring... And one of your own poets has said it. Don't think of God like gold or silver, an image made by man's design and skill. So the assumption of the Bible is that every human being made in the image of God was made to know this God. And that they do have some knowledge of this God, to which appeal can be made. And proof need not be provided. The, this God made you. In the beginning, God. Now, where else do we see this? Take a look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. The same assumptions, the same presuppositions are used in what Paul teaches now in Romans 1. God made everything. He made man in his image. Having made man in his image, man knows him and was made to know him, even if he doesn't want to know him. So verse 18. The wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice the phrase, suppress the truth. Hold down the truth. Press down the truth. Now, they press it down. They hold it down. They seek to contain it. We'll see in a bit. They seek to put it out of their memory. They try to get rid of it. But they seek to hold it down and suppress it. But you can only hold it down and suppress it if you have it. Do you hear that? They seek to suppress it because they've got it. So the suppressing is a reaction to having. I've got this truth about God, but I hold it down. I suppress it. And God's wrath, God's anger abides against that. Since, here's why. Here's how they suppress the truth. Because what may be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So, being understood from what has been made, what has been created. So, men look at creation and their first thought is there's a creator. That's their first thought. They were made to have that as their first thought. That's why your kid, and this may not be true of any of you since you're obviously at least occasionally church-going folk, 
But, you know, you can have somebody who's never darkened the door of a church and their, and their kid will come up to them and go, hey, what about God? Where did that come from? That kid was made to know God. And this is what happens, and maybe this has happened with you all. Many a parent has, has gone, oh, man, I need to get to church because my kid's asking questions about God. That kid naturally asks questions about God because he was made to know God. He was made in God's image. And he looks at the world, and immediately his first thought is creator. And he starts thinking about creator. You... You created me. You created all of this? Well, that means you own it? That means you're in charge of it? That means you own me and you're in charge of me? Now, that can't be right. We've got to have a better explanation than that. How about there was a, an explosion? And over billions of years, you appeared. Now we're talking. I ain't responsible today. Now listen, I'm being only somewhat facetious. That's why Henry Morris was right when he titled one of his books, Henry Morris, a creation scientist, he titled one of his books about evolution, The Long War Against God. Because people have to work at denying that now. Look at creation. Your first response is creator. But now work at it to suppress it because the implications of this are ugly. He owns. He owns me. He gets to tell me what to do. Psalm 19 says what Paul says here in chapter 1 and verse 20. Verses 19 and 20, doesn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. And show forth his handiwork. So people made in the image of God were made to know God in and the Bible is declaring that when people look at what has been made, God makes plain to them the fact that He is and that He is powerful, obviously, having made this stuff, and thus He is the owner. And therefore you're rendered without excuse. Because, verse 21, for although they knew God, and when it says, although they knew God, literally that phrase in Greek says this, for although they knew the God. It is very specific. Not although they have some vague notion. They were made in the image of God. They were made to know God. God has made stuff to make clear that the creation points to a creator. But although they knew the God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, three points out of Romans chapter 1. Three. Three. The first one is this. Unbelievers know God. They know God because they were made in his image. They were made to know him. And they know him from the fact that they are creatures in a world that is created. Unbelievers know God. But secondly, unbelievers do not want to know God. 
So here's the problem. It's not for want of evidence. It's for want of willingness to believe the evidence. So having the truth, they hold it down. They suppress it because unbelievers know God, but secondly, they do not want to know God. To the extent that, although they knew God, verse 21, they suppress by failing to glorify Him as God, not giving thanks to Him. And as a result, their thinking becomes futile, foolish hearts are darkened. Some of you may remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about what theologians call the noetic effects of sin, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic. And that's from a Greek word in the New Testament, nous, which means mind. It means the effects of sin on the mind. You see, friends, sin is not just an act of the will. Sin is also the way we think, found in the way we think. To put it another way, it's not just in what we do. Sin is found in the way we think. And there is such a thing as intellectual sin. And the reason that Paul, in Acts 17, is willing to debate, and the reason I am willing to debate, and the reason you need to be willing to debate, is because there is such a thing as intellectual sin. False thoughts need to be confronted. Lovingly, but directly. It is sin to think wrong about God. It's not okay. That is why 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, says that we are to engage in, this is a quote, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You remember that phrase? take every thought, our own thoughts, but then as we engage in this mission, seeking to bring the sinful thoughts of unbelievers as who know God but who don't want to know God and express that in the way they think and express their thoughts, it needs to be lovingly and directly challenged if we're going to live right in a world gone wrong. Although they claim to be wise, verse 22, they became fools. I'll come back to that in a minute. But notice uh, down in verse 28. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's a fancy way of saying, since they don't like to think about God. Retain the knowledge of God. We don't like to think about God. Why don't we like to think about God? Because the implications are too ugly. Creator, owner, tell me what to do. I don't want to think about that. So since they did not like to retain, want to retain the knowledge of God, their thinking becomes futile. God gives them over to a depraved mind, sinful mind. So that now they do what ought not to be done. But notice this, thinking precedes doing. 
Before they start doing what ought not to be done, they start thinking what ought not to be thought. Because they've rejected the truth that God has made plain. Holding it down because they know God, but secondly, don't want to know God. God is like, you know, some bad event you had in your life. And, and, and maybe you've had some horrible events or just, just a, a, a car accident or, you know, something worse. You survived it, but, you know, you don't. It flashes into your mind, but you just want to put it away, right? It's too painful to think about. That's what the Bible's saying here. God's too painful for unbelievers to think about. And so, you know, when they look at the world and they go, man, that looks like it's really designed. No, I can't be. Get, get rid of that. Remember the quote I gave you a couple weeks ago? From, um, who did I give it to you? Richard, Richard Dawkins. He writes a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And he says, you know, it looks like it's designed, but we always have to remind ourselves that that's not the case. So, you know, you'll have these flashes of this horrible idea that this might be designed and it might be owned and you might be owned by, but get that out of your head quick. So God gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done and then goes on to list all the stuff that flows from that. Friends, what you are seeing in the decadence, the increasing decadence of our culture was preceded by a suppression of the truth about God. And the actions we are seeing in our culture now were preceded by a thought process that has increasingly and regularly sought to dethrone the true and living God. And you teach the children long enough that they are not subject to a personal God. Do not be surprised when they engage in all the stuff Romans 1 says. We act like we're shocked. Are you kidding me? We have given them the intellectual basis for doing the very things they're doing. And then we go, what's going, what's going on? So we all agree there's something wrong. But the unbeliever has no basis for saying what it is. They want something done about it, but they don't know what ought to be done about it. The one thing they know for sure, it's that preacher ain't right. That book ain't right. It can't be that it's a creator, a personal creator to whom I am personally responsible. Unbelievers know God, but they don't want to know God. And then because of all of that, because they suppress the truth, it renders them, here's the third point, it renders them as fools. Unbelievers are fools. Now, I'm not recommending this as your evangelistic method. Hey, you, fool. Or in the midst of the debate, calling the person a fool. So this is just between us. But the book actually says that. Right? Verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And you remember what I've told you about foolishness in the Bible. The foolishness, foolishness is not uh, a lack of intellectual firepower. A lack of IQ? It's not that. A fool may be very smart, very intelligent fools. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter, and it's certainly not a matter of ignorance. Ignorance is, I don't know. That's what the word ignorant means. I don't know. 
There's lots of things all of us don't know. But foolishness is not ignorance. Foolishness is failing to appropriate what you do know. Failing to apply what you do know. We've already been told what they do know. They do know God. But because they don't want to know God, it renders them now fools because they fail to appropriate what they do know. That is why Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Not the ignoramus has said in his Not the simpleton. Not the dumb guy. The fool. He's a fool because God has made clear but he refuses to appropriate and apply what he does know. And as a result, they become, they become fools. And then as a result of that, and this, so one thing leads to another, right? You reject God. That leads to futile thinking, suppressing the truth, become foolish in our thinking, and therefore what we do. And then God says there's an ultimate result of all of that now. That whole digression, uh, that whole regression, that results in something very dire. And it's found at the end of verse 20. Last phrase in verse 20 says, they are without excuse. Right? Well, that's very dire. (laughs) I've made it plain. You don't want to know it. You've rejected it. Your foolish hearts become darkened. Your thinking is depraved. Therefore, your actions are depraved. And you're without excuse for all of that because I have made it plain. And when it says you are without excuse, that phrase, uh, without excuse, is from the Greek word apologia. We get our English discipline apologetics from it. You all have heard of apologetics? So you could get a book on apologetics. You could take a class on apologetics. But it comes from this Greek word. It doesn't mean to apologize. Excuse me, I'm sorry, but I'm a Christian. Would you, would you listen to me, please? We don't apologize for what we believe. That's not... Apologia means a defense. And apologetics is training in how to defend what you believe. So here, without excuse is the negative form of apologia. And that's why it says without excuse. Get this now. It's literally without a defense. Unbelievers are left defenseless. Without an apologetic. No excuse. And will one day stand before this creator whose truth they have suppressed. And we'll have no excuse. And the truth of Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 will come to pass. That before the law of God, before the, the righteous, holy standard of God, every mouth will be stopped. All of the unbelievers in all of their unbelieving theory and frankly nonsense will one day be silent before God without any defense, without any excuse for having suppressed what He made plain. If we're going to live right in a world gone wrong, 
we have to recognize that unbelievers are, this is what I call it, unbelievers are in denial. Just to use a little psychobabble for you. You know, if somebody's in denial about their... Unbelievers are in denial about their condition as they suppress the truth. Now get this. They suppress the truth about God. It affects their, their, their thinking, which in turn directs what they do. It makes the world worse. They see that it's gone wrong. They, they know it's not working, but they don't know what to do about it. And the futility and the darkness of their thinking is so deep that they don't even recognize that it's their very own thinking. And as a result, their very own doing. That the world is as wrong as it is. So here they are trying to chase their tail. Trying to create wrongs, correct wrongs, and a mess of their own making. Man, how messed up is that? You know, you all know I don't have a dog. <laughs> but I've seen dogs chase their tail. Now, do any of you animal people, what do you do? Do you just let the dog tire itself out? How do you, you know, and so I guess they just get tired of chasing their tail. But here's the thing with an unbeliever. They never get tired of chasing their tail. As bad as it gets, keep going in circles and in a downward spiral. And this is what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book. You've got five wisdom books, three of them written by Solomon, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and uh, Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, gives us 12 chapters of wisdom compared to what the world thinks. And Solomon says that, and this is my paraphrase, that the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness, he calls it, and this is the phrase he uses, chasing after the wind. You, you're never, you're never going to end that chase. You are chasing after something you know not what, you know not how to grasp, you know not what to do, how to corral it, Unbelievers spend their lives chasing the wind. If we're going to live right in a world gone wrong, we've got to recognize that. So, unbelievers live. How, how do they live? <laughs> how does the world function at all? How does the world go round at all? Well, it goes round because God, one, made it round, made it to go round, sustains it. All the while, he has people made in his image, made to know him, denying him and denying his truth and holding it down, suppressing it. All of that is going on in, in his world. And yet they, the very people who deny the God who gave all of that and does all of that, benefit from that. Using God's oxygen to deny God. With every breath that the unbeliever takes, He's using what belongs to the Creator to deny the Creator. 
So the unbeliever lives in God's world, and he lives from the benefits of God's, in the benefits of God's world, all the while denying it is God's world. And so one writer put it this way, unbelievers live on the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. That's a fancy phrase, but they live off of the borrowed capital of the biblical world. That is, they're freeloading. They're freeloading off of us. They're freeloading off of God in His world and what He has made clear. The only way that life can go, continue to go on <laughs> is that, that God made us in His image and, and that has a restraining effect and the presence of believers who are being remade into His image has a restraining effect so that the futility and the darkness are not as bad as they could be or, scary thought, or will be. As bad as it is now, it ain't as bad as it could be and it ain't as bad as it will be. And unbelievers are living off of the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. Now I want to re revise that slightly and then we'll be done. This writer that I was quoting says, unbelievers live off the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. And I think it is actually more accurate to say this. Unbelievers live off of the, the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. You see, they're borrowing and they ain't ever paying back. They're stealing God's stuff. They are misappropriating God's stuff for their own ends. Living off the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. So we live in a world that's gone wrong. We're called to live right in this world that's gone wrong. To be in it but not of it. As we're going to do that, we have to have a firm grasp on what's wrong. And what is wrong is ultimately that people have first and foremost rejected the Creator. And having rejected the true and living God who made them and to whom they're responsible, all of these awful things that we are seeing, and friends, you know, there could be a revival, but there's no sign it's getting better. And so all these horrible things we're seeing are derived from that. That's what's wrong. Now, if we're going to live right then, we have to have a firm grasp on what's wrong so that we can then know what to do about it. And we'll begin to look at that next week, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth and light in darkness. Lord, we need it desperately. We need people who believe it and people who know it and people who live it and appropriate it in their, in their lives and who will disseminate it and preach it. And so I pray, Lord, that you will help us through this series to be able to have firm convictions about you and about your truth and about how it is that we are to approach this culture and to live as lights in the darkness that is the culture. I pray, Lord, that you will go with us this week and help us to live as lights in the circumstances that you have placed us. Help us not to think that this battle takes place only at Mars Hill. It takes place over our kitchen tables. It takes place within the four walls of our homes. It takes place at work. 
It takes place in our neighborhoods. It takes place in our hearts, Lord, which are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And prone to leave the God I love. So help us this afternoon and tomorrow and the remainder of this week to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need your aid desperately, Lord, to do this. And we ask you to grant us physical safety until we return next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.